Hi friends, you're listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast, coming at you live from downtown Hamilton, Ontario. We are currently meeting on Zoom during this season, and so we invite you to join us on Wednesday nights. We meet from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, and then following our liturgy, we have a half an hour where people are welcome to join breakout groups, either with the same people every week, if you want to build some relationships, or just in a group for whoever's there for one night. We also have a children's program that runs on Sunday mornings, as well as a community check-in. And so you can go and find all of that information at eucharistchurch.ca, as well as figure out what we are going to be doing as we hopefully start to emerge out of this pandemic over the next few months. But for now, let's jump into the sermon podcast. This uh, story takes place after the women had met Jesus uh, at the tomb. Mary, in particular, had met the resurrected Christ. Following that, the disciples met Jesus. They were sealed up in a room, and Christ appears to them and says, Peace to you, gives them the Holy Spirit, and says, Whoever sins you let go, they are let go. Whoever you hold fast, they have been held fast. But there was one disciple who was not present with them that night, and so now we'll turn to his story. Picking up in verse 24. But one of the twelve, Thomas, which meant twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my hand into his side, I will most certainly not have faith. And eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. The doors being sealed, Jesus comes and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. Then he says to Thomas, Bring your finger here and look at my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and cease to be faithless, but be faithful instead. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, You have faith because you have seen me. How blissful those who do not see and who have faith. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, this week, as I read the text, I tried to read it through the mind of a kid. Um, I've had a great honor in the last couple of months to be teaching one of the kids' table classes at Eucharist um, for the kids that are uh, seven and older. And it's been, it's truly like, no offense to all of you, but it's become the highlight of my week. It is my favorite time of teaching in the week because we're all cynical and jaded and tired and kids don't get any of that. They don't have a cynical bone in their body. They're curious and excited. But what struck me most about kids is that they're so imaginative. Like you can't sneak a story by them. If I read that, they would just go, wait, why wasn't Thomas there? What was he doing? They'd immediately ask questions like that. And so I've been trying to channel some of what I've learned from these kids into my own reading of scripture. 
to ask every question, to not be afraid to let my imagination journey, uh, to take part in uh, what in some traditions has been called Lectio Divina, reading the text in a way that places you in the story. And that was the question that immediately came up to me this week. Where was Thomas the first time Christ appeared? Where was he? What was he doing? So I was trying to brainstorm and think, what are different places that he could have been? What could he have been doing? When I asked Jill where she thought Thomas was, she shrugged and said, I think he's getting groceries, um, <laughs> which was a very practical answer. Uh, so maybe he was getting groceries. As I reflect on him, I, I feel like in the text, and this is my reading into the text and likely my projection, but I think that there's something about the way that he is not present. The 11 are there, but one is not there. There's something about Thomas that makes him seem different. Or maybe that he in some way saw himself as different. That the 11 are together in this room with the door sealed for fear of the Judeans. But he's different. I wonder if he would have felt that way. I don't know if any of you ever feel that way when you're in a place. You go, yeah, well, everybody else does X, Y, Z. But I'm different. Maybe Thomas wasn't afraid like the rest of the disciples. Maybe he considered himself the brave one, and so he wasn't going to lock himself in an upper room and hide. He was still out on mission. Or maybe Thomas saw himself as the smart one who wasn't going to keep getting had. He had put his trust in Jesus, but that had proven to be fruitless, and so maybe he was now leaving Christ behind, not praying in an upper room, but journeying onward. Or maybe he saw himself on some sort of special mission, that the 11 are going to be up there doing whatever they're doing, but I have a special mission from the Lord to take part in. And I'm not sure, but I feel like in this idea that the 11 are there, but one is different, that there's something in maybe Thomas's own identity, in his own self-identity, that keeps him slightly apart from everybody else. Now, this story has given him the poor nickname Doubting Thomas, which I feel is very unfair. Like, nobody wants to go down in history as doubting, you know, blank. Uh, and churches have responded differently to the character of Thomas. Uh, some have sort of shamed him or cast him as a bit of a, a negative person in light of his doubt. You know, that he should have had more faith. He should have known. And, you know, maybe that's fair. Others have empathized with him. I think this is maybe more the Eucharist posture because a lot of us are occasionally ye of little faith. And so for a lot of us, Thomas is this model of what it means to doubt well, that he keeps showing up with the disciples, that he's willing to meet Christ when Christ appears. And so, you know, we've talked about Thomas in that way. But this week, I want to take a bit of a different angle um, because I was praying about the text. And this is one of those texts that comes up over and over after Easter. I noticed that the word doubt wasn't even in the story. There is a Greek word for doubt, but it's not found in this story. And so I tried to reframe it a bit. Maybe Thomas isn't doubting so much at all, but if he's not doubting, what is he? And if I had to give it a word in my reading this week and placing myself into the text, I think I feel in Thomas's answer, you know, his quick, snappy answer, unless I see the, uh, what's he say? Unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands and put my hand on his side, I will most certainly not have faith. This week, I didn't see that as so much about doubt as it was about defensiveness. And I recognized that because I have that in me. I don't know about anybody else, but occasionally uh, 
I've had friends share with me what God has said to them or share with me charismatic experiences that they've had with God and encounters that they've had with God in their quiet times. And I, this is gross and awful and I feel horrible about it, but I always just have this kind of inner eye roll like, oh, here we go again. You're big time with the Lord. I don't know what that is. I don't like it. It feels gross to me. But whenever somebody shares some big moment they have with the Lord, part of me just wants to go and just kind of push it back. And I recognize that there's a certain defensiveness that I can have when I hear about others' encounter with God. I hope I'm not the only one who's ever felt this way. But I don't know what that is, but I guess I I sense that in some way, someone else's encounter with God can feel to me, if I'm not in a good space, like an implicit critique of my lack of encounter with God. That someone simply sharing their testimony about how they've met Christ in their prayers, in their life, in worship, in silence, can somehow feel to me like an implicit critique of my spirituality. And so I get defensive and I get guarded and I shut down and it limits my ability to actually listen to what God is doing beyond me. Perhaps the doubt that Christ wants to confront in Thomas isn't actually his doubt in God or his doubt in the resurrection as much as it is Thomas's doubt in the people that God has placed around him. His doubt in the other 11 who he's walked with for years, who he knows the character and the heart of, who he understands have no good reason to make up some story about meeting their Jesus resurrected and walking around and eating fish. I mean, what kind of group of 11 people would agree to make up a story like that together to what? Trick their friend Thomas because he wasn't around? But even though he's got no reason to doubt it, Thomas still pushes others away. And he pushes away what they've seen of Christ, which keeps him distant and isolated and out of the same room that they are in. Now, to Thomas's credit, whatever it was that kept him out of that room or whatever it was that caused him to push away their testimony, he kept showing up, which is probably the number one bit of advice I'd give anybody who's doubting who's struggling to know exactly how they fit in God's world, is that he continues to show up because eight days later, he's in the room with them. And this time he meets the resurrected Christ himself. Again, Christ appears in the space without warning. And what I love in Jesus's words is that Jesus doesn't judge him for his defensiveness or his skepticism, but he sets him free from his defensiveness and his skepticism. Take a moment, close your eyes, just picture Thomas in the room, talking, eating, praying, waiting, and suddenly he turns around and standing right next to him is the Lord of life and death, the resurrected Christ, now in a fully complete body, still bearing the wounds of the crucifixion, which have now been transformed into glorious scars, 
And upon seeing Thomas, Christ says to him, Come closer. See me. Smell me. Touch me. Touch the holes in my hand. Touch the wound in my side. Come close enough to encounter me. Come close enough to receive what you need to have faith. And then he speaks to him something. And what he says is often, I think, being heard as a critique. But a lot of it comes down to how we read it. I always heard it as him saying, you have faith because you've seen me? Oh, how blissful are those who don't need to see to have faith? You know, sort of a finger wagging for his doubts. But what if Christ isn't condemning Thomas at all, but revealing how things actually work? As I imagine it this week, I imagine Jesus placing his hands or Thomas's hands into Christ's hands. I picture him taking Thomas's hand and putting it into Jesus's own side and then whispering to him, not a criticism, but a secret long hidden in the cosmos. You have faith because you have seen me. How blissful those who do not see and who have faith. Because the truth about life is that we don't see much, do we? The letter of Colossians, one of the earliest Christian hymns, talks about how Christ is the source of all things, how in him all things were made and all things hold together, how Christ is the firstborn from the dead, meaning that that the spirit of Christ, the logos, the grace, the mercy, the truth of Christ, the patterns of Christ's wisdom, his death and resurrection have been hidden among all of creation and have now been revealed to us as the eternal patterns of resurrection that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And that is all around us every day, in the birds, in the air, in the water, in the harvest, in our relationships, in our neighbors. Christ is hidden all around us, and we perceive almost nothing about reality. We perceive almost nothing. I heard a, I heard a study, and like, you know, it was one of those internet studies, so who knows how accurate it is, but in broad strokes it works. I heard that we see our body at some level is being presented with two million pieces of information every second. Two million pieces of information, but we can only perceive around 130,000 pieces of information, which is still pretty impressive, but 130,000 is way less than two million. So all around you, even right now, there are millions of things calling for your attention. The wood on the table next to you, the smells in the air, a white noise in the background. There are things all around you, but to exist as a human being, you have to limit your focus to just a few things. And then uh, these same people suggest that we can really only think about, out of that 134,000 things we are taking in, we can only hold in our mind four to seven things at a time. And so how could we see Christ in all of his fullness 
If of everything that is existing, we can perceive only a bit of it and we can hold on to even less, how can we know Christ when we can only pay attention to four to seven things at a time and Christ might be coming at us in two million places every second? Well, maybe that's why we need each other. It's actually very brilliant. Because if God's goal through Christ is to reconcile the cosmos, then this is perfect. That Christ gives everyone in the church only one piece of the puzzle. Only a few ways that each of us will encounter Christ. A few things that, as Thomas did, we get to see, we get to touch, we get to taste. A few times where we get to encounter the fullness of Christ's work, but only in a few areas. To encounter the fullness of Christ's work beyond our own limitations, beyond what we can see in our embodied realities, in our location, in our life situation, with our minds, with our hearts, with our personalities, we are going to need to learn to listen to one another. We're going to need to learn to be attentive to one another and to hear in one another witnessing to where we have all seen Christ. But I don't know about you guys, listening is hard. Do you ever find yourself talking to somebody and as they're talking, you're like, ooh, soon they're going to be done and then I get to talk. Anybody else? Like you could kind of like remove the person you're talking with from the situation and you'd still have a decent time. Like listening is a bit of a lost art, especially during a time like COVID when you really only get to talk to the people that you live with and usually you just talk about the same stuff over and over. And so really paying attention, really hearing someone, really perceiving someone is hard. Listening not just to the words that they speak because that's only part of hearing someone but listening to the emotions behind their words because those two witness to Christ. Listening to their body posture because their bodies witness to Christ. Listening to their hopes and their fears and their dreams because all of those witness to the eternal Christ. A couple of years ago in a small group that I ran, uh, Rob Miller was in the group. Many of you will know Rob Miller. He uh, runs morning prayer at St. Luke's in the North End and also works at 541 Eatery and Exchange. And Rob, if you don't know him, he's got a huge beard and long hair and he reads the Bible in Greek. He's never owned more than a flip phone. He's just a real like modern John the Baptist, except for the locust part. He's awesome. But But one day in our small group, Rob just kind of breathed out this like heavy breath and we all looked at him and he said, guys, we're not even talking. We're sitting here and everybody's saying something, but we're not even talking. We're not really listening. We're not really two living beings engaging in something to discover what God is doing. We're just flapping our mouths and running our tongues. And of course, as you've heard earlier in the sermon, my initial response was defensiveness because that felt like an implicit critique of my small group leadership. But of course, he was right. He was right. Listening is a lot harder than just talking. Really listening requires patience, requires humility to assume that we don't know everywhere that Christ is at work. Really listening requires becoming a non-anxious presence who can unfold your hands 
and allow God to take out what needs to go and place in what needs to be placed in. Really, listening requires a non-judgmental posture where we cease to run others through our pre-existing assumptions and grids and convictions and instead hear them as truly beloved people who have encountered Christ. It requires us to believe that the other person has encountered something we haven't. When we limit Christ to only what we can see and what we can touch, it can feel like Christ is nowhere. Or it can feel like Christ is only in the one or two places where we have seen him in our own lives. And maybe this then is why Jesus says to Thomas, Blissful are the ones who believe what they haven't seen. Because you may only see Christ in a handful of places. But if you listen to the other beloved of God, you can hear about Christ everywhere. When we listen to neighbors, to strangers, to friends, to children, we realize Christ is everywhere. And of course, that's only half of what it means to become people who listen. Because to listen also requires that occasionally we speak. And I think we all, in a place like Eucharist, a lot of us struggle with how to speak about our encounters with God, not because we haven't had them, but because they seem too simple. Sometimes they seem too mundane, they seem too personal, too small to trumpet with everybody around us. But I want to encourage us to speak, to speak about the small ways that we encounter Christ. Last week, after our uh, Zoom call together, in our breakout rooms, we had just one question I had no idea how the question was going to go, but the question was, where over the Easter season have you encountered Christ? And I was like, all right, I'm ready for it. Like, I've done this Zoom thing a lot. I understand that most Zoom breakouts are a bunch of silent squares where people kind of muster up the courage to say something. I get it. It's fine. It's just the time that we're in. But for some reason, this question that I would have assumed was the hardest question we've ever asked people to answer was the one week that everyone shared a story. Every single person had some encounter with Christ. One young woman talked about a storm that calmed as she walked her dog and how in that moment of the storm calming, she sensed Christ calming the interior storm of her soul. We had a grandpa talk about his grandchild who held him as tight as God and left him with a blessing and a crink in his neck that functioned as a reminder all week of God's love for him. We heard from a couple who took a long, slow walk through downtown Hamilton on Easter Sunday and paid attention to the colors and the smells and the sounds of Christ's love as expressed through every unique neighborhood they walked through. And so Eucharist, as we move through this Easter season and look ahead to life together on the other side of this pandemic, I dream of a community of listeners, all of us, noticing the presence of Christ all around us and having faith in what we have perceived 
but not stopping there. I dream of a community of testimony, sharing our stories humbly and joyfully with one another, of all the places we have noticed grace, we have noticed joy, we have noticed unconditional love, the places we have encountered death, which always leads when we enter into it to surprising bursts of resurrection so that none of us will be limited by the things that only we have seen, but that together we could be immersed, we could be baptized into the world of the church, a world in which we listen with one another's ears and we see with one another's eyes and touch with one another's hands, Christ all around us. Blissful are those who have not seen and yet believe. Amen.